The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. Our modern day creative heroes have heroes of their own. One of film music's most influential and prolific composers is from the golden age of Hollywood. He's regarded by many as the father of film music. He is Max Steiner. And this is The Soundtrack Show. score has been composed, weeks of intensive work follow before the music finally is heard on the screen. Arrangements, orchestrations, rehearsals, and then the big day on a studio scoring stage when a symphony orchestra brings to life the composer's themes. Here we see the orchestra as it plays in synchronism with the picture on a miniature screen. There was a period of approximately 20 years when the predominant musical voice in Hollywood was that of a kind of classical style. That time is sometimes referred to as the golden age of Hollywood music. Context is everything. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins. And in this episode, we're going to chat about one of the greatest and most prolific film composers of all time, Max Steiner. Who? Some of you may be asking, and why? I I don't even know any of his music, or I haven't seen any of the films he wrote music for. Well, maybe I have. If these thoughts or similar thoughts are going through your head right now, then I want to start this episode by saying again, context is everything. It's a phrase I often say to myself when I discover something new. Well, new to me, even if it's decades or even centuries old like a new piece of music or a new film score or a new story that I'd never heard before. Without any context, what anchor do I have for enjoying anything that isn't a part of my modern life? How do we possibly relate to anything that was created before we were born that isn't currently part of our everyday cultural conversation, part of the zeitgeist, you know, something that people at work or school aren't actively talking about? You know, we're talking about the latest Star Wars or Marvel movie. We're talking about the season finale of Game of Thrones. We're talking about whatever it is that we're talking about. But are we talking about, you know, a bridge on the River Kwai, for example? So how do we start to become interested? Or more to the point, why? Well, I'd like to offer two reasons. Number one, because with a little context and even the briefest study, we can start to understand how stories from the past and music from the past have shaped our musical present. Right now we're in the age of Hans Zimmer, of Thomas Newman, of Henry Jackman, etc. But before that, we were in the age of John Williams and James Horner. Before that, Henry Mancini and Bernard Herrmann. And even before that, there was Dimitri Tjomkin, Franz Waxman, Adolf Deutsch, Eric Korngold, Alfred Newman, Miklos Rosa, and yes, Max Steiner. All of these composers have been having one big creative conversation for decades with one composer's work influencing and teaching the next. As fans of soundtracks, it becomes enjoyable to start finding those connections. 
Ah, I just said enjoyable. That brings me to my second point. Joy. It's fun to learn this stuff. To ask ourselves, how deep does our inner geek actually go? Because believe it or not, going back into the past, watching old movies, old TV shows, and listening to music from decades past can be, if you haven't done it, an absolute joy. I know, I know, it can also feel like work. The, uh, the acting styles are different. It's in black and white. Boy, there are cultural bumps in the road to get past, as our modern attitudes about race, gender, sexuality, equality, etc. are very different than a script that's straight out of the Depression or World War II. We don't know who the movie stars are. Nothing is seemingly topical in our modern lives. But having said all of that, my friends, I would like us to consider this. Even the greatest, most expensive wine has tannins, can be bitter. And if you're on a steady diet of big special effects films, cutting edge modern films, or just films from your nostalgic childhood, all you're going to taste are those tannins. You won't enjoy the fruit. Trying to sit down and watch Citizen Kane after you just watched the latest Transformers Michael Bay movie is kind of like drinking a $100 bottle of Cabernet after you just downed two bowls of Frosted Flakes. It's not going to taste very good. So on the soundtrack show, my hope is that a little context, that is, relating it to our modern interests and making modern connections, will cleanse our palate so that we can see past just the surface of movies from 75 plus years ago. I really want to get into the history of music because, to me, it helps me appreciate the music of today. So let's go ahead and open the bottle and let it breathe. Today, I'm going to give some creative and technical context for Max Steiner. By the end of this episode, my hope is that you'll have a clear connection in your mind to his work and the work of modern film composers, certainly like John Williams, who we've already covered extensively on the show. Without Max Steiner... We wouldn't have a lot of the technology that developed in the film industry. Without Steiner, we wouldn't have the romantic orchestral tradition so strongly in our minds, like the sweeping scores that we've covered thus far. Without Max Steiner, our heroes wouldn't have made the movies that changed our lives as young people. You see, while someone like Steven Spielberg may be a hero to us, he too had his own heroes as a young person. Max Steiner was one of them. So much so, in fact that Spielberg named his first son Max. His nickname for John Williams when they started working together was Max. When George Lucas pitched Star Wars to Alan Ladd Jr. at 20th Century Fox, he invoked the names of Korngold and Max Steiner to describe the kind of epic he was going to make in Star Wars. So, with all that context, I'm dying to answer the question, who is Max Steiner? Uh, this music fits in the concert hall like any music written for the symphony orchestra. I mean, who is Max Steiner? Where did he come from? Who did he study with? And what makes him any different from any other composer in the 20th century who is worth our time? And the only thing that makes him different is that he wrote for the cinema. I mean, this is a great Viennese family, the Steiners. Uh, Max Steiner's grandfather was the one who told Johann Strauss to write for the theater. So we can thank Grandpa Steiner for Deflatermouse. Max Steiner is the composer that brought us the film scores for King Kong, Casablanca, Little Women, The Informer, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, The Searchers, and of course, Gone with the Wind. I won't name all of his films, 
because it would take the entire episode. Because you see, he composed more than 200 film scores for RKO and Warner Brothers and MGM. He pioneered some of the most important film scoring techniques and recording techniques that are still used today. And he gave us some of the richest, most incredible film music of all time. Max Steiner was born in Austria in 1888. He was also an Austrian child prodigy, like Eric Wolfgang Korngold. His family was in the music business, just like Korngold. He studied under Gustav Mahler. His godfather was Richard Strauss. But he is different than Korngold. His career took a much different path. Steiner's family was in the theater business. By the time Max Steiner was 15, he was traveling between England and continental Europe, conducting in the theater professionally and writing his own operettas. By the way, for our knowledge, operetta is another word for musical, which is how they came to be known in America. Germany had zingspiels, England had operettas, and Americans had musicals. So speaking of America, Steiner eventually came to America in 1914 when he was just 26 years old. He worked on Broadway as a musical director, arranger, conductor, and orchestrator, with such giants as Jerome Kern, Victor Herbert, and George Gershwin. Then, something interesting happened over on the West Coast. Talkies. Warner Brothers' picture The Jazz Singer was a smash hit talkie in 1927, and suddenly the silent film era came to a close, and movies had soundtracks. By 1929, almost every movie in Hollywood was a musical. So much so that Broadway was practically drained of its musical and stage talent by Hollywood producers in 29. This is exactly what happened to Max Steiner. In 1929, he headed west. Through the early years of talkies, musicals reigned supreme. But Steiner started innovating almost immediately in films. There's a movie by David O. Selznick called Symphony of Six Million, and it featured, for the first time, original music, real music, written specifically just for a movie, under dramatic scenes. The process started out slowly. He wrote just one section of original music, but Selznick liked it so much that he made the innovative decision to allow Steiner to underscore the whole movie. According to author Tony Thomas, Steiner, quote, pioneered the use of original composition as background scoring for films, end quote. It seems crazy to think now, but that just hadn't been done before. You see, there was a concern early on in the film business that music needed visual justification in order to be in a movie. So, for example, if two lovers were in a forest, oftentimes producers would have this minstrel with a fiddle skipping through the background just to justify the inclusion of a romantic musical theme. Producers were slow to make the leap towards music existing for its own dramatic sake. Which, by the way, as a fan of opera, I find historically fascinating, as that's what opera is. Drama set to music. And opera's been around for 600 years, and it's one of the most culturally and musically significant inventions in all of history, but that's for another episode. All of this is to say that what we think is so obvious today was not obvious to early pioneers in the movie business. Back then, Steiner's use of dramatic underscore was an invention. And while that movie, The Symphony of Six Million, has mostly been forgotten, Steiner's contribution makes it worth noting, especially when we consider what happened next. 
Max Steiner changed movies forever and practically invented film scoring in 1933 when Marion C. Cooper directed and produced King Kong. And now for a brief intermission. And now, back to the soundtrack show. We recently covered Jurassic Park on the soundtrack show. This was a huge movie for a lot of us, an extremely influential movie from both a visual and musical standpoint. But it's important to point out that the Jurassic Park phenomenon bears a striking resemblance to 1933's King Kong, a technical marvel that wowed audiences with its stop-motion photography and special effects. And just six years after film sound was even invented, featured a musical score that changed everything. Remember in Jurassic Park when Jeff Goldblum says, what have they got in there, King Kong? Even on the set of Jurassic Park, there was reverence to the 1933 King Kong from Spielberg and the creatives. So much so that when they were shooting the famous T-Rex pavilion scene on the Warner Brothers lot, Spielberg had a special guest in attendance. Actress Faye Ray, who played the lead, Anne Darrow, in the 1933 King Kong, was there on the set of Jurassic Park at age 85 to witness Spielberg directing a young Ariana Richards as she screamed at the T-Rex. Cut. Good, good. Excellent, excellent. We're going to dedicate this scream to you. Please. Because please. you did the first good scream ever in the history of movies. Is ever. that right? Ever. And I get credit for that? Isn't that oh, amazing? You should. You, yes. should. you should be part of the Foley tracks all around Hollywood. The I best scream ever. <laughs> they used it a lot. I think, I think she, she studied you somehow because <laughs> she's got the kind of range. Okay, Steven. Okay, and Lex, and action. Ah. Okay, cut. Cut it. Context is everything. King Kong's influence on multiple generations of Hollywood creatives can't be understated. Without King Kong, for example, we wouldn't have the amazing body of work that we have from stop-motion wizard Ray Harryhausen, responsible for films like Clash of the Titans, Mighty Joe Young, the original, and Jason and the Argonauts. When I first saw King Kong in 1933, I, I wanted to do something in the film business. Well, in 1933, when I was 13, uh, King Kong, there nothing like it had been put on the screen. Truly, the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. Ray Harryhausen is actually featured on the King Kong DVD, if you get it. He provides the film commentary, along with ILM veteran Ken Ralston. A quick search brings up a long list of creatives that are influenced by King Kong, including Tim Burton, Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead fame, Peter Jackson, and many, many others who went into the field of visual effects. All of these folks who were influenced by King Kong all say the same thing. The music is what sold the visuals. Max Steiner took a quantum leap from Symphony of Six Million to King Kong. He lent credibility to the crude stop motion of Kong, to the early effects work. Steiner provided the terror. Steiner provided the emotional graft that the audience followed. Steiner made that movie work. And how did he do it? Well, he brought the entire romantic Viennese tradition to bear. <laughs> Let's take a listen. This is a more modern recording of the uh, film score for King Kong.
in the span of one year, one year, from just 1932 to 1933, Max Steiner went from proving that underscoring films with original dramatic music was an idea that worked, to essentially taking an entire symphony orchestra in the tradition of Mahler, Wagner, and Strauss, and placing them in the middle of the jungle against a stop-motion puppet, and it worked. Who cares where the brass is coming from? Ultimately, Steiner proved that it didn't matter. The musician with the theater and the operatic background, Max Steiner, the musician is who ultimately guided Hollywood towards these conclusions, which again seem obvious to us now. You see, it's interesting since I brought it up earlier. Opera is a composer's medium. The composer controlled the libretto or script, the subject matter. They called the shots on almost everything. Film is not controlled by composers. It's not a composer's medium. It's controlled by producers. It started out as technical, as photography, as visual storytelling. Music happened later. But Steiner is the one that proved that the dramatic principles are the same. The relationship to music and story in film is no different than it is on stage. This is something that we know now. But for early producers and technicians, the idea of re-recording a mix of dialogue, sound effects, and music together seemed kind of far-fetched. As it turned out, it really wasn't. Film and music are a match made in heaven. And as for Max Steiner, well, he was just getting started. Steiner was an incredibly prolific composer throughout the 30s doing half a dozen or more pictures a year. He was under contract with Warner Brothers as he was honing his craft. But this was during a time when best practices for film were still being invented. While Alfred Newman was using his own system of dots and streamers, something we'll discuss at a later date, Max Steiner was developing his method for using what's called a click track. Basically, in order to keep time with the movie, Steiner would wear headphones as he was conducting the orchestra, and he had mapped out via his cue sheets all of the different tempos or speeds needed for a particular scene. And he would take that tempo and punch holes in the work print in order to hear an audible click. Here is Hollywood session cellist Eleanor Slatkin discussing Steiner's use of a click track. Each one had his own system. It was really, at the beginning, well, you, you know, after a while you, you get so you know, but at the beginning, it fascinated me how each one did things a little differently than the other. Max was the click track, but only he wore the clicks. We didn't wear them. Later on we did, but at the beginning he wore them to keep himself where he wanted to be with the film. And also to match a door slamming, you know, whatever he wanted to catch. It was all clicked out for him. Click, click. One, two, three, four. And that's what you conduct to. So to give an example of how this would work, let's say there's a scene that's about one minute long. And in that scene, there's someone just walking towards a door. And Max Steiner wanted to have music that was at the same speed as the character's footsteps. So he would find the tempo, let's say two footsteps every second. It's a pretty fast walk. 
Well, that's 120 footsteps a minute. That's also 120 beats per minute. There's your tempo. One, two, da, ba, ba. So using simple arithmetic, you could create a click track by figuring out how many beats are in a second of film. Well, film ran at 24 frames per second. So you would punch a hole in the film every 12 frames. Ooh, but wait a second. The character stops 30 seconds into this scene, and then he violently breaks down the door, which starts an action sequence for the rest of the scene. No problem. The click track would change at 30 seconds to the new tempo. This is the guide that Steiner conducted by, with all of these click track and tempo notes marked in huge ink on his orchestral conducting score. By the way, true story. Steiner once scored a scene with a character that had a limp. He scored the limp. Bop, 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 bop. Besides being a master of the click track, he was also hugely responsible for a practice in film scoring called Mickey Mousing. That is, catching the action with the orchestra and synchronizing it so closely with the orchestra that it almost can become comical. Usually that's the intention anyway. These are the techniques that were being developed in Steiner's prime. Film scoring was, in the 1930s, being invented by a very small handful of people. And Max Steiner was right there at the forefront. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. In 1938, David O. Selznick once again hired Max Steiner to score a movie. This time, it would be his ambitious epic, Gone with the Wind. But in order for Steiner to score it, they both had to go to Warner Brothers and convince them. See, Gone with the Wind was an MGM picture, and Steiner was under contract with Warner Brothers as part of the old Hollywood studio system. Warner eventually agreed to let Steiner do the picture, but it was not easy for him. He only had three months, and he had to keep up his Warner Brothers workload. Let me paint a picture of what Steiner went through in 1938. Three months to score Gone with the Wind. That wasn't an ordinary movie. It was so long. It's Steiner's largest score, clocking it at around three hours of music. That's one hour of music to produce a month. And as if that weren't enough, he had to do it on top of his Warner Brothers scoring duties. Besides Gone with the Wind... Steiner wrote a whopping 12 other film scores that year, making 1938 his most prolific year throughout his entire career. And it took a toll on him. According to Tony Thomas, quote, To meet the deadline, Steiner sometimes worked for 20 hours straight, assisted by doctor-administered Benzedrine to stay awake. End quote. For his efforts, Steiner has, over the years, become a legend due to his amazing score for Gun with the Wind, which AFI lists as number six in the top ten movies of all time. Though it didn't win the Oscar that year, its influence is still felt in film scoring today. Here's conductor John Mosseri talking about the genius of Max Steiner. Mosseri, by the way, several years ago re-recorded several classic film scores, including a cue from Gone with the Wind. Let's listen to him talk about Steiner, and also listen to him conduct terrorist theme. Just as Tchaikovsky was and Beethoven said it was fate knocking on the door for the Fifth Symphony, 
There's a visual image which I think goes back to the heart of Western music. I don't think it was invented for, I mean, I know it wasn't invented for the cinema. I mean, we know this quite simply from ballet and opera or, or tone poems which tell stories. But I think it goes back even further than that. I think it is basic to the way we hear music and the language of our music. And at the same time, we have an incredible power in the use of memory inherent in Western music. That moment in Gone with the Wind when Katie Scarlett O'Hara is told that land is the only thing that matters, and we hear that theme of Gone with the Wind of Tara. We see the silhouette of Scarlett O'Hara and her father and the land, and we see that great tree We hear something and we remember it. And when it comes back, a half hour later, an hour later, we remember it. And, we, and it's like you know, a reminiscence of the good old days, or it's like when we find a picture of what our mothers looked like when, you know, when we were born. Conductor John Mosseri is referring to there is thematic writing, motives or motifs, or as Richard Wagner made famous in the 19th century, leitmotifs, themes that we associate with characters, with locations, dramatic situations. What we're hearing is Steiner starting to heavily employ thematic writing in his film scores. Here's composer Elmer Bernstein on the genius of Max Steiner and his thematic writing. When sound came in, uh, a lot of music was put on soundtracks just to keep the soundtrack alive. Then you started to get people like Max Steiner came along, and they began to particularize the use of music. I mean, you know, the villain. Bum, 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 dee. Then, you know, it's the villain, right? During war pictures, if we were to see a British warship, Max Steiner would tend to go, da, 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 dum, bum, bum, da, dum, 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 you know, Britannia rules the waves. Now, that's an intellectual communication, because through music, he's telling you this is a British warship. Uh, it makes music seem very important. And one of the things that Steiner did early on, by these, these kinds of techniques, people suddenly, this is a specific piece of music for a specific dramatic event. This leads me to my absolute favorite Steiner film score, Casablanca a Warner Brothers picture from 1942 starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, directed by Michael Curtiz. What we have in this score for Casablanca is a perfect blend of original score and famous familiar tunes that give broader social and political context. I'd love to do a full episode on Casablanca alone, 
The history of it is fascinating. The backdrop of World War II, the creation of Bogart as a leading man, the anti-hero, and the blend of diegetic music with film score, which, by the way, is another one of Steiner's trademarks. But let me just give you an overview of the movie. Set during contemporary World War II, it focuses on an American expatriate who has to choose between his love for a woman and helping her and her husband, a Czech resistance leader, escape from the Vichy-controlled city of Casablanca so that he can continue his fight against the Nazis. Rick Blaine, played by Humphrey Bogart, owns a nightclub in Casablanca, and he discovers that his old flame Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman, is in town with her husband, Victor Laszlo, played by Paul Henreid. Laszlo, like I said, is this famed rebel in the Czech resistance, and with Germans on his tail, Ilsa knows Rick can help them get out of the country. So, Max Steiner's film score uses the melody for the French national anthem as both a cry of freedom in one scene, the whole bar sings it in protest against the Nazis, and as a twisted minor melody at times that inspires dread as the French were occupied by the Nazis at the time. The other piece that was used reflects a common practice in films even today, and certainly back then, and that is the use of a big song. The Herman Hupfeld classic as Time Goes By is a huge part of the plot of Casablanca, and it represents the lost love of our two characters. Sam, the bar's pianist, plays it in the film, but Steiner actually incorporates it into his film score, oftentimes in a very dramatic way, changing the setting again to minor or diminished, giving it a longing, mournful quality. Here's film composer David Raxon discussing the use of As Time Goes By. You know, there was a long tradition of using theme songs in silent movies. And Maxie, of course, got stuck, so to speak, with using As Time Goes By in Casablanca, uh, which, of course, he did use, you know. song by Herman Hupfeld. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you, on that you can rely, no matter what the future brings, as time goes by. Sam, I thought I told you never to play. And Maxie, of course, worked a little of his magic on it, distorting the tune here and there so that it would not be user-friendly at all times. To illustrate Max Steiner at the height of his ability, I want to play you a Casablanca film score breakdown by music professor David Neumeyer. In the following scene, shortly after Bogart's heartbroken and intoxicated character Rick asks his pianist Sam to, quote, play it again, referring to as time goes by, Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman, enters the bar after closing time to finally face Rick. She needs his help, but Rick feels scorned. Listen closely as Neumeyer guides us through this musical passage. So what Steiner does with his very first chord is to create a much more sophisticated version of that same um, punctuating dissonance. In this case, it's uh, what's usually called a stinger chord. The function of the stinger 
is to force attention, not to the music, but to something that's going to happen on the screen. And in this case, the chord is played, and Ingrid Bergman walks in the door. This chord's held a series of slowly descending chromatic notes. These, I think, are associated with the difficult situation that, uh, that Rick finds himself in, that is the Humphrey Bogart character, and uh, creates a wonderful dramatic contrast with his uh, I really don't care posture. Rick, I have to talk to you. Then the affect shifts to get us from that suspenseful opening to as time goes by, which is the next thing we hear. Several bars after that, we get an angelic version of a march. This is the Norwegian music that refers to the resistance. It's really a kind of montage technique built on that concise representation of something, whether it's mood, character, reminiscence of a theme. This really is cinema music. Part of its structure is the way it interacts with the, with the story. Steiner first captures our attention with a stinger. Then gives us a walking line. Rick, I have to talk to you. Why did you have to come to Casablanca? There are other places. I wouldn't have come if I'd known that you were here. Believe me, Rick, it's true. I didn't know. Funny about your voice, how it hasn't changed. I can still hear it. Richard, dear, I'll go with you any place. We'll get on a train together and never stop. Don't, Rick. Fragments of As Time Goes By. standing on a station platform in the rain with a comical look on his face because his inside had been kicked out. Can I tell you a story, Ricky? You got a while finish? I don't know the finish. Then dramatic chords. It's about a girl who had just come to Paris from her home in Oslo. She met a man about whom she had heard her whole life. An angelic march. He opened up for her a whole beautiful world full of knowledge and thoughts and ideals. Everything she knew or ever became was because of him. I heard a story once. As a matter of fact, I've heard a lot of stories in my time. They went along with the sound of a tinny piano playing in the parlor.
and ends the whole scene with a trumpet playing the main figure of La Marseillaise. That is film scoring at its finest. And it took place decades and decades and decades ago. Before I close, I want to relate a couple of interesting stories about Max Steiner, especially since we previously covered the life and career of Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Both were from Austria. Both were childhood prodigies. Both were of Jewish descent. But they were very, very different in their careers and in their creative output. Here's Eleanor Slatkin again, the cellist, discussing their differences. Max Steiner was a pupil of Mahler. Korngold was a pupil of Richard Strauss. Well, that kind of background, how can you miss? Max was unique. Al Newman was unique. And Korngold. Max Steiner and Eric Korngold were opposite. Because Max treated it as a film, totally, and Eric treated it like an opera. It's fascinating. Uh, Another interesting story I actually wanted to share about Steiner on an unrelated note. This is actually about Steiner and the Nazis. Before the United States became involved in World War II, way back in 1939, Warner Brothers was the first studio in Hollywood to make a strong anti-Hitler political stance. They knew the dangers of the Nazis, and they were extremely vocal about it. In 1939, they produced the first anti-Nazi Hollywood film called Confessions of a Nazi Spy. People around town thought they were nuts. See, by creating this film, they were essentially going to destroy their sales in the German market. Actually, not even for Spy, but all Hollywood pictures in Germany and Japan. They did it anyway, as they were convicted to take a stand. Max Steiner also wanted to take a stand and provided the film score for Confessions of a Nazi Spy, but he did so without taking a film credit. While he wanted to take a stand, he feared for the lives of his relatives still in Austria and Germany. By omitting his name from the credits, he may have saved his relatives from Nazi retribution. One lighter story that directly involves both Steiner and Korngold. The two were contemporaries. They knew each other, and both worked at Warner Brothers for a time. They had a friendly rivalry, but a mutual respect. After all, they had a lot in common, even though they approached movie music in two very different ways. One famous exchange between Korngold and Steiner was overheard on the Warner lot and shows off their quick wit and friendly competition. This was a little later in both of their film scoring careers, and Steiner turned to Korngold and said, Eric, why is it that over the years... My music keeps getting better, and your music keeps getting worse. Without missing a beat, Korngold cleverly replied, That is because you keep stealing from me, and I keep stealing from you. I want to close with an email that I received from Glenn from Pennsylvania. This really speaks to the power of music and why I think it's so important to talk about it. Hi, David. I know you get a ton of emails just like this one, but I have to add both my congratulations and thanks to you for the soundtrack show. On my first listen, it became my all-time favorite show. I listen to at least a dozen different shows regularly, as I have a lot of windshield time in my work. I eagerly await every new episode of yours. Music has been an integral part of my life since, well, my birth. My mother and her sister were trained as classical pianists, 
and I heard music in my home every single day. I would wake up to the sound of my mother practicing the piano and would often go to sleep to the same. My brothers and I were required to learn a minimum of one instrument growing up, but were encouraged to learn three. There was always a radio playing music or a record on the turntable or live music in my childhood home. It's a long way of saying that without music, my life would not feel complete. As a child and then as a teen, even though we were exposed to all genres of available music, both my mother and I gravitated toward classical, opera, and my favorite, film soundtracks. My mother loved movies and taught me to love them as well, with the added benefit of her teaching me about the music that made them infinitely richer. She introduced me to Max Steiner and Eric Korngold, among others. We would watch films together, and she would tell me about how these amazing composers, who she considered underrated geniuses, would actually help tell the story in the movie through the music they wrote. They weren't just adding a little something to the movies. They were actually telling the stories through sound. Suffice it to say that your show hit me right where I live. You're doing the exact thing that my mother would do, but with so much more depth and information. I feel like my 13-year-old self hanging on every word, every bit of information. I never continued into a career in music, yet I don't know if a day has ever gone by in my life where I have not heard the sound of music playing or with me humming, tapping, or singing a tune. And that's 56 years of music. I've had the absolute great fortune to have one of my sons become a classical pianist, and much to my delight, a huge film buff. I get to do the same thing with him that my mother did with me, with the exception that he knows way more about music theory than I ever could hope to. Even though he lives on his own in another state, we both listen to your show and text and talk about it together. I literally have tears of joy in my eyes as I type this message to you because of how strongly this affects me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, talent, and passion with all of us who listen to the show. I hope you know how greatly it affects so many people. Music does that, though, doesn't it? I wish you continued success and hope to hear many more episodes of The Soundtrack Show. Warm regards, Glenn. Glenn, thank you so much for writing this and sharing your story. Music really is a part of our emotional core part of who we are and this email really hit me thank you and thanks to all of you so much for sharing your stories and your feedback i'd love to hear from you at the soundtrack show at howstuffworks.com you can also follow us on facebook and instagram at the soundtrack show hsw or on twitter at soundtrack hsw i'm also on twitter at david w collins we'll be back with more music analysis and plenty of historical context this is the soundtrack show Thank you.